Amen. Good morning, church. Good to be with you today. Uh, hope you are doing well. Um, we are going to continue our series on, uh, on new wine. So far, we have talked a little bit about um, Jesus, the way that he goes over uh, that, peril, that parable with his disciples when he's in that moment teaching them. We've also talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit just comes and moves in our hearts and moves in our minds and, and moves in our lives. And we've talked a little bit about that. But it's, today, uh, I wanna talk about kind of a very specific reality around new wine. Um, how do we become new wine skins in the first place? What is so obvious about Jesus's parable is this, is that he is saying, hey, you, you disciples, uh, you can't pour out what has never been poured into you, right? You can't, you can't house this new wine that I offer if you live this old life that you've always lived. That's kind of the, the central point of that parable is that this old life that you've lived can't house this new life that I offer and there's some implications around that. So now the question that we need to wrestle with today is how do we become new wineskins that are qualified to carry the new wine of Jesus in the first place? How do we become these new wineskins? Let me make it a little more simple. We can't receive the new wine Jesus offers while still being so full of the old wine that we're born into this world with. In Matthew 9, Jesus is saying, I can't use you Pharisees. They want something for me that I'm not able to give. You're expecting something that I'm not willing to give to you. So you can follow the way of the world. You can follow the way of the Pharisee or you can follow me. But let me be clear, those are gonna be two very different lives. There's gonna be two very different paths. That's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 9. So how do you and I today ensure that we are following the path of Jesus and not the path of the world? How do we access this new wine that Jesus offers? As we talk about this series of new wine, how do we, how do we access that new wine? We can't access this new wine that Jesus offers unless Jesus changes us into new vessels. We can't access new wine unless we ourselves become new vessels. Friends, you and I have a need. We have a need. We have a need to be made new. Friends, we have a need to even be informed that we have a need. You and I are walking around with this, this body that is decaying, that's already an old wineskin that has holes in it, that is failing us left and right and letting us down. Friends, sin has, has wrecked us. We, are, we walk around with, with scars that we can never undo, with injuries that we can't fix ourselves. We are in trouble because of sin. This pandemic should highlight this reality more than ever, right? We're, we're walking around constantly in fear of this thing that we have zero control over. We can't be certain of the testing. We can't be certain of the results. We can't be certain of how we get it. We can't be certain that we're not gonna get it. We're not certain if we ever will get it. There's so much uncertainty around it. And that sickness exists in our world because of sin. And just like with COVID-19, we have a need that we're walking around with of we can't shed these injuries. We can't shed these scars that we walk around with because of sin. 
So what's the disconnect? Where's the disconnect for us? Knowing that we have such a steep need, knowing that we have a need to have access to this new wine that Jesus offers. Is there something that we don't know? Is there something we're supposed to do? What must we do to follow Jesus, right? We see that question asked in scripture, in the book of Acts. What does he ask from us in exchange for making us new vessels? These are questions that we have to wrestle with this morning. My wife told me a story uh, yesterday. So we have a minivan, Honda Odyssey, fantastic vehicle. And it is like mom level 1 million, right? Like Honda Odyssey, just fantastic. Got two kids, works for us, just great. And she was telling me that as she's putting the kids in the car seats, getting them loaded up, we have these magic buttons in the driver's seat, right? You press the button up front and the doors close for her, just fantastic, just awesome. And she's doing that, she gets kids in the seats and uh, she gets in the, in the driver's seat, buckled up, all right, everybody's good and uh, presses the, the mom button in the front, gets the passenger side door to close. Oldest kid sticks her foot out of the van. Door gets closed and goes beep, beep, beep. Backs up, opens back up. Macy's like, okay, honey, don't do that. Not cool. Presses magic mom button again. Van door starts closing, does it again. And my wife spins around. If you do that again, I'm gonna cut your foot off. Immediate, I mean, of course she's kidding. She's joking with our kid. But immediate weeping, like intense tears, like intense sobbing tears, like, no, mommy, no, no, no. And I love this phrase that she said. She's sitting strapped into her little car seat and she says, no, mommy, you said the wrong words. You can't do that, I need my foot. My three-year-old's freaking out thinking mommy's really gonna cut the foot off. And she's like, no, mommy, you, you said the wrong words. <laughs> Friends, that's the kind of urgency that we need to have about our need for Christ. Mom clearly joking, child completely serious about exactly what she knows she needs we're gonna start off by looking at Ephesians 2. If you wanna turn there, go ahead. But what I want us to feel is this desperation of being cut off from Christ. Just like my little girl screaming, no, mommy, no, don't cut my foot off. I need my foot. I want us to feel that same sense of, Father, I need Christ. Father, I need Jesus. Father, I cannot be cut off from Christ. That same intense desperation of our need for Jesus. So I'm gonna start by laying out the gospel for our minds, the gospel for our head. And then we're gonna talk about the gospel for our hearts. And lastly, the gospel for our hands. If you've got Ephesians 2, we're gonna start right there. If not, it'll be on your screen. Says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature, we were children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who was abundant in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace, you are saved. 
He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Amen. What I want you to see is that this, this is pretty cut and dry language, right? Like this is, this is like, hey guys, you have this need. You, you, were, you were separated from Christ. You were enemies of Christ. You had a sin need, but by God's grace, he has shown you mercy in Christ and drawn you to himself by grace through faith. And then he's given you good works to walk in. It's just A, B, C, just spelling it out, cut and dry. It's very logical. It's very linear. It goes from just a very specific and direct progression of thought. And this is just kind of the basic mechanics of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, despite being sinful enemies of God. And I'm not saying that a passage like this doesn't move our hearts in a certain way, but the language itself uh, is very factual. It has a very factual progression to it. It doesn't highlight some of the other things that that we see in scripture, right? Like we see in scripture, the fatherly nature of God or the fact that he adopts us into his family or the fact that he knit us together in our mother's womb or all of the the loving uh, ways that the Psalms speak of God or that other passages of scripture speak of, of a very personal God. This is very forensic, if you would. This is like a police report, right? Like a suspect broke into house and they took this and that and then they broke the security system and then they snuck out the back door. Like it's just... These are the facts. It doesn't like take into account like, you know, mom was terrified and the kids hid under the bed and dad was beat up in the living room. Like it doesn't take into all the personal details of a police report, right? It's just perpetrator came in here and they went out there. This is very just kind of factual and it appeals to our mind is what I'm wanting to see. This is a, a gospel proclamation that makes sense. It is very matter of fact in that. It doesn't tug on our heartstrings the same way that other verses do. It spells out in factual, understandable way what salvation in Christ is. And I wanna contrast this a little bit to the gospel that tugs at our heart, that appeals to our heart. The gospel for our head is, is important. Now I wanna, I wanna contrast it with the heart here in just a second. But first, the gospel for our head is important because it corrects wrong ways of thinking. It corrects things that we, we store up in our mind about the way that the world is or the way that people are, the way that relationships are. And what the gospel, what this does, gives us a framework and a foothold that we can then begin having our mind transformed and renewed. Make no mistake, what we think about a thing does in fact shape how we feel about a thing, Right? Like the way, that we, the, the, the way that we think about something, our opinion on it, the facts around it shapes how we feel about a certain thing. For some of us, we, we live in our heads. We are, we are a logical mind 
like rational driven person, right? That's the way God's created us. That's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way that we are in fact designed. For some of us as followers of Jesus, we relate to God primarily through the life of our mind, through, through logic. Maybe that manifests itself in you find yourself to be more of a person that likes to open the word and read scripture rather than uh, like have a really long time of prayer or if in a worship service, you tend to enjoy the preaching much more than you enjoy maybe singing songs or something like that. Maybe you live kind of in the life of your mind. You like to read books, you like to study, you like to know theology, you like to know philosophy. And that's the way that you relate to God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just, that's not, that's not a weakness. Uh, that's just the way that we were in fact created for some of us. Here's what we have to guard against. We have to guard against thinking that because we know all of these things, that they will somehow transform our hearts into action. Just knowing certain things does not always lead us to act certain ways. A renewed mind certainly flows from a renewed heart, but our hearts can also be appealed to from our mind. I was reminded of this. It seems like all of the distress and turmoil in my life happens around a minivan and a car seat. So here's another one for you. Uh, I was reminded of this through McClendon the other day. Uh, she, was, she has this insatiable need to uh, display that she's a big girl, right? Like that she, she wants to just let everybody know like, hey, I'm, I'm grown, I can do it. Like, watch me, watch me. If, if little sister starts getting too much attention, she's gonna go over here and do something really crazy so that we have to, to watch her or, or something like that. And I probably need to sign her up for counseling now for so much need for approval, but another matter for another day. But uh, she like wants to prove, no, I can climb into my high chair no matter that it's twice as tall as me. I can climb into the van, I can buckle my own car seat. So things that, as a parent, just pro tip, things that bother you at like nine in the morning or don't bother you at nine in the morning, they begin to like make your head explode around four or five in the afternoon because the day's worn on and you're tired and you've dealt with the same stuff. So this is one of those scenarios. So we're, I'm buckling McClendon into her car seat and she's like slapping my hands away, right? Like, no, daddy, no, I got it, I got it, I can do it. I can buckle my car seat. And before I could really like grab the words and really think about it, something just sprinted out of me and it said, McClendon, if you would just ask for help, life would be so much better. And it's like God could have just held a banner over me. It's like, hypocrite, like, I'm just, it just sprinted out. And it was like, God was saying it to me out of my mouth of like, if you would just ask for help, life would be so much better. I was like, yeah, Jordan, it sure would be. And if you would relate to God that way, life would be so much better. But it was, and this has obviously nothing to do with McClendon at this point, right? This is a story about Jordan and his need for growth in the Lord that uh, I, I, I know in that moment that she's three. I know that her mind is not ready to like grapple with lofty philosophical concepts like, our universal need as people for one another, you know, like asking for help. Like she's not ready to engage with any of that. This is a story about me and my needs, right? That I needed her to just ask for help because that was gonna make my life easier, right? That's what the, the point of the story really is. But it just, it just was like the Lord just showing something to me. And it was just a real reminder to me about truth, a reminder to me about facts. Just knowing, knowing the fact that I need to ask for help does not always lead to me asking for help, right? 
I know that it would be better for me if I did, but how often do I as a Christian expect the exact opposite from truth? I expect that because I know this true thing that therefore I'm now a sophisticated person that's gonna live differently. Knowing something, and this is important for us, knowing something doesn't always lead to acting differently. Here's my fear for us today, that we'll let the gospel live only in our minds as a story without letting it capture our hearts and truly transform us. I would fear for us that we would be a people that attend Sunday mornings because it's Sunday and this is just what we're supposed to do on Sunday mornings without letting this this truth of the gospel transforms something at the very core of who we are. Here's what I know. Here's how I know that knowing things will not make you behave differently. Sugar and fatty foods. I know factually those things are not great for me. I know that they are detrimental to my health. And yet last night I ate a cupcake and two brownies and I had like six slices of pizza. Like I know factually those things are not good for me. And yet... They are, that truth is not enough to overcome how I feel about cupcakes and pizza. And this is my challenge to us. Us knowing a lot about Christianity isn't enough to change how we live. Us knowing a lot about the things of God is not enough to transform who we are as a person. We reside in a part of the world that knows a lot about the things of Jesus, but that knowledge doesn't necessarily lead to change. In other words, just knowing new wine doesn't go in old wineskins doesn't stop us from acting like old wineskins. Only the Holy Spirit can transform our hearts into vessels that hold this new wine. So Ephesians 2 is very cut and dry for us, right? It's very, it spells it out in a very direct way what the gospel is. But I want you to see something this morning. I wanna turn to Psalm 28 and I wanna contrast this with the gospel that appeals to our heart. If you'll turn there, if not, it'll be on your screen once again. I want you to see how David connects with God at a very heart level way. Let me read this for us. Psalm 28, Lord, I call to you, my rock. Do not be deaf to me. If you remain silent to me, I will be like those going down to the pit. Listen to the sound of my pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while malice is in their hearts. Repay them according to what they have done, according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Give them back what they deserve because they do not consider what the Lord has done or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and not rebuild them. May the Lord be praised for he has heard the sound of my pleading. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices and I praise him with my song. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people, bless your possessions, shepherd them and carry them forever. I 
I'm wrestling with whether to share something with you. I shared it at the nine, and I think I wanna share it with you too. This was, this was something that just struck me, even at the 9 a.m. service. Um, I think a lot of times I read scripture like this, and I think, wow, David was an inspired dude. Like, he just probably sat down, just banged out this psalm real quick, just all, you know, just verses one through nine, just boom, just wrote it all straight out. But if you notice, there's a break between verses five and six. Some of your translations may not include this, but some, some different translations will notice that there's like a big break between Psalm, or verse five and verse six. And this is why I think that the Psalm is actually written this way. If you're an artist or if you write music or if you write poetry, a lot of times you don't arrive at the final copy like first sitting, right? You have revisions, you have edits, like you write a song, it takes you like a year to revise it and to get it right. I think, I, I think that's what we see here in Psalm 28. David seems to be pleading, God, listen to my cry. Listen to my plea for help. Hear me, give them back what they deserve. He's, he's praying revenge on his enemies. Like, God, do this thing, move in this way. And what we see is in verse six is that later in life, something happened in the life of David and he remembered this prayer that he prayed. It could have been a month, it could have been a week, it could have been a year, it could have been any number of time. But he remembered this prayer that he prayed of God move against this enemy, move in this thing in my life. And he says, may the Lord be praised for he has heard the sound of my pleading. How could he write that unless God did in fact hear the sound of his pleading and moved in a way that he had un- was not expecting? or that moved in a way that was directly tied to his request. David is at a very heart level way, seeing that God is doing something in my life that I expressed a need about, so much so that at the end, he refers to God as a stronghold of salvation. I wanna leave something with you with this. Meaning leads to moving. Meaning leads to moving. The things that mean the most to you move us at a heart level. If it has meaning in your life, it will move you at a heart level. In fact, just yesterday, there's a ballet recital in this very room on this stage. There was tapping and there's all kind of crazy stuff going on. And my daughter was involved. She was, she's a little ballerina. And I'm sitting over here and I'm watching this recital and this is like my first ballet recital, one of the first ones I've been to. And they, uh, they show, within the first like two minutes, they show this highlight clip of all these graduating senior ballerinas that are gonna go off to college now. And I just start crying. Like I just feel myself moving tears. I'm like, what's going on? Like, what's happening? I just met a ballet recital, what's going on? And I'm just getting teary-eyed. It's these dancers that are performing for their last time this is their last recital before they graduate. And uh, I'm getting choked up now thinking about it. The, what, I, what I was seeing was this potential future of my three-year-old 15 years from now. This thing that means so much to me. I'm seeing this potential future of what things are gonna look like and how she is gonna advance in her skills and how she's gonna put on performances that people remember and how being a part of a team is gonna mean so much in her life. And is that, because it means so much to me, is moving in my heart in such a way that it's moving me to tears. 
the things that mean the most to us, the things that mean the most to us will move us at a heart level. And this is my fear. This is my fear. Some of us can't connect with David in the Psalms because we are cold in our hearts towards God. We can't connect at a heart level the way that David connects with the Lord in the Psalms because we, in fact, in our hearts are cold towards God. Maybe we even haven't connected with God at a heart level in the first place. Maybe you have enough knowledge about things that you'd admit out loud that Jesus is the Christ, but salvation doesn't come through simple admission of facts. It comes through faith. And faith isn't something you just know in your head. It's this relationship that has captured your heart. And I really wanna press in on this today. God will do things in your life, experientially. God will do things in your life that just makes your heart full of joy. He will connect with you as a loving father in a personal way at a heart level. And he'll do things in your life just to express how much he loves you. And I just wanna challenge us, seriously, do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of the universe just will connect with you at a heart level way? Have you experienced that in fact? Have you experienced Jesus Christ connecting with you in a way that you could say, Jesus just told me he loves me. God as a loving father, he'll just do stuff to communicate, hey, I'm here, I see you. You matter to me. I love you. That happened to me this past week. And, you know, it just happens in the most ordinary stuff for me. Me and my, me and my wife are just in the kitchen, kind of going through, all right, doing our grocery list. Need some more peanut butter, need some eggs, need some this or that. And I notice, ah, I need some more protein powder. So just make a mental note of it, add it to the list and go on about my day. You know, we still got a little bit left, no big deal, but it's coming to where I'm gonna need some. Fast forward a few days, I get her knock on my door at, in my office and uh, Pastor Joey pops in. He's like, hey man, just, you got a second? I said, yeah, sure. And he just pops in and he's like, hey, I don't, I don't know if you could use this or not, but my son doesn't like this protein powder and uh, he just doesn't taste good to him. I don't know, could you even use this? And you know, that, may, that means nothing to anybody else in the room except for me. But for me in that moment, it was just a, a strange little moment where I could just feel God as a loving father saying, I love you, big guy, enjoy. I just, I felt him in that moment just saying, Jordan, I love you. This is just, just enjoy this one on me. Like no, no reason for me to deserve that. No reason for me to earn that. But it just connected with me in a way that God of the universe just saw just a simple little thing and just said, hey, I love you. And, and you know, of course I could do the thing of like, oh, well, you know, Joey's got protein laying around everywhere and oh, sweet, I get his leftovers. And I could be ungrateful for it. Or I could look at it and see as a moment where the God of the universe just did something special in my life. My challenge to us is do you connect with God in that way? Do you enjoy being with God? Like seriously, could you, could you just step back in your life and say on a day-by-day -day basis, I just like hanging out with the guy. I just like being with God. I just like being with my father. Because here's the reality, guys. In Psalm 28, David says this, that those who do not hear from God, this is verse one, 
are like those who are heading down to the pit. David is saying, you have clearly marked me off as different in this life. You have said that I am not like everybody else. You have set me apart. And these people are going down to the pit. Do not let me be like those. And if God, if you will not hear my cry, if you do not hear my voice, then I'm just like everybody else. And what we are saying as followers of Jesus is that because of the Holy Spirit, because of our relationship with Jesus, we are not just like everybody else. Do you connect with God at a heart level way that you can point to and just say, I enjoy being with the Father? He says that those who hear from God, and this is the flip side of this, at the end of Psalm 28, he says, those who do hear from God are those who look at Jesus and they say, this is my stronghold of salvation. Now, I don't know if you guys are Lord of the Rings fans. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, so I'm gonna tell a Lord of the Rings story. Uh, But Helm's Deep is this giant fortress in the story, right? It's this giant thing. And it's such a magnificent city with these huge walls that the people bank on that. It is their stronghold of salvation from invading armies. Like in the movie, millions of people are coming against this city and they're like, we're good. We got, we got this wall. We've got Helm's Deep. Nobody's breaching these walls. They look at that city and say, this is our stronghold. We're good. This will save us from the impending attack. And this is my question. Does your heart have that kind of confidence in God? Has your heart connected personally to God so much so that your affections have been moved? Is God a stronghold of salvation in your life? In other words, when things get hard and you get stressed, do you turn to God as relief in that situation? Or do you turn to the skills that you have? Do you turn to the money that you have? Do you turn to the family that you have? And I'm not saying those aren't all gifts from God, but if we don't recognize that these skills, the family, the resources, all are a gift of God, then those things are our stronghold. And we're saying we don't need God to provide those things. Is God the stronghold of salvation in our life? Friends, we should be very afraid of living life in our own strength, living life in our own ability. If you can't see and identify, hey, God just did this in my life and I can tell that it was connected to his love for me, I would really challenge you to search your heart and ask, do I know God as a father? Finally, what moves in our hearts and what renews our minds will ultimately express itself through our hands. What we know in our minds and what we believe in our hearts will ultimately express itself through our hands. Now, there's an example of this that I heard in a podcast this week. A pastor was saying, you know, everybody that works for me can't see my heart, right? And I'm not talking about the little organ that like, bloop, 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 bloop. I'm talking about like his desires for them. His like heart for the organization. He said, they can't see my heart. All they can see, all they can do is hear my words and see my facial expressions. And those are the things that communicate outwardly to other people what my heart is. And there's grace, right? Like there's certainly times that we say things or do things that we didn't mean to say or say it in the way that we didn't understand or, or that we didn't mean uh, to communicate it that way or, or you know, like you're, do- you're dealing with somebody that you're really close to. You certainly don't always communicate the way that you intended to communicate. Um, 
But I, this is what I would say is that the holistic gospel, this, this head, heart, hands gospel would implore us to connect what we know in our minds and feel in our hearts to express itself by how we engage our hands. It's got to get to a place where we're expressing outwardly what we know in our heart. And I wanna show you this in James. This is kind of where we'll land our plane. I'm gonna start in verse one, chapter one, verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Very cut and dry. Here's the command. James is saying to us today, 2020, be doers of the word and not hearers only. That is the imperative. That is the command. Chapter two, my brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes so that you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over here or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear? If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. What James is saying is over here, here's, here's the command, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Do these things, here's the command. And then application, don't treat people differently based off of their wealth. Right, like here's the command, be doers of the word. Here's, here's how you do that. Here is an example. Don't show favoritism to people based off of their poor or their rich. And so he is showing them like, engage your hands based off of what you know in your heart, church, based off of what you have said that you believe in your mind, church. Be doers of those things. Engage your hands with these things. Get your hands dirty in the work of ministry for these things. And the example that he gives, just one, don't show favoritism to people based off of their income. And one way we can express this, that's like a specific example, but a more universal or a broader example that James gives, is just the great commandment, right? You shall love the neighbor as yourself. Here's what's scary, is that James says to these same people, if you just say you believe that without demonstrating it, you're, you have a demonic faith. That's scary. That if we would say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the risen King and that I should love my neighbor. If you can say those things without actually engaging in them and doing them, you have what James would call a demonic faith. He goes on at some point at, later in chapter two and says, even the demons believe these things and they shudder. They believe, even is this, you, you think you do well just saying you believe these things? Demons believe these things and they shudder at the presence of Jesus. We should be very afraid that we would confess something in our minds without it actually moving in our hearts in such a way that it expresses itself in the way that we live. 
If we have something in our hearts that Christ has placed there, if he's placed the spirit within us, it will express itself in the way that we engage with the world around us. James invites us first to lead ourselves, stir your affections up for Jesus, love Jesus, actively pursue him, have your heart connected to Jesus in a real way, learn more about him, then love your neighbor as yourself, right? Like lead yourself to love God, then lead yourself to love neighbor and that will carry over its influence into more and more. And this is my hope is that your head, your heart and your hands are all redeemed by Jesus for Jesus. That we as the normal Bible belt Southern Christian would not settle for just part of our lives being redeemed. That we wouldn't settle for just knowing a lot about Christianity, that we wouldn't just settle for just a little bit of ourselves or just a little bit of Jesus or just a little bit of salvation, but that all of who we are, our head, our heart, and our hands would be redeemed by Jesus for the mission of Jesus. This is what I love here at the end of of James chapter one. James gives us this really interesting invitation that I, I wanna extend to us today. He says that, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion. What James means by that is not what we mean by religion, but just an outward expression of what you believe in your heart. That's what James is getting at with 127. Pure and undefiled expressing what you believe in your heart before our God and Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James is saying, if you wanna really express what you believe in your heart through the actions of your hands, care for the orphan, care for the widow, keep yourself unstained from sin, lead yourself and then go lead another person. Lead yourself to love Jesus and then get engaged with serving someone else. That is almost James' playbook for changing the world. I hope that we would share in that. With that said, I wanna invite Shannon Ramsey to the stage with me. We're gonna talk for just a minute about uh, what he's doing with Families for Families. Uh, We're gonna actually take a morning to begin to take what James says in 127 and just see, could we step into this? And my heart is not to manipulate at all. My heart is that we would see something that's a clear invitation in scripture and that we would prayerfully ask God, would you have me do this? And here's the thing, guys, the answer can be no. The answer can be families for families is not the thing. Caring for orphans is not the thing. That's okay, there's a broad world of telling other people about Jesus and discipling people that do believe in Jesus out there for us to get engaged with. But this is an opportunity for us to take James 1.27 that we've talked about and say, could this be what God's calling us to? So Shannon, thanks for joining me this morning. It was fun talking a little bit at the nine and uh, wanna share with our folks at the 11 a little bit of what we talked through. But just tell us, kind of start off with who you are, what you've been up to and, and what we're doing. Yeah, so my name is Shannon Ramsey. I'm originally from Statesboro, grew up here, graduated from Southeast Bullock, went to Georgia Southern for a little while, met my wife and uh, moved to the other side of the world for the last decade, serving overseas as an international missionary. Um, but God... Uh, brought us back and season of life to come back here and come back home. And um, 
you know, uh, the opportunity to join with Families for Families uh, came up, and so we took that opportunity. Uh, we've got three kids of our own. We've got a, a, a 17-year-old son, a 15-year-old daughter, and our youngest is five, and we actually adopted him from overseas. Awesome. Awesome. So how did Families for Families, this organization that you work for, how did it actually get started? Um, well, it got started um, just as a result of, of like this James passage got laid on, on, on the guy on the founder's heart. The guy's name is Wayne Noggle. Um, I want to encourage you around you. There are these, these fires and these trifolds. There's some information there. Uh, the details of the story is on the back, but the kind of the abbreviated version is um, he was a, a contractor um, and serving in ministry, serving in his church and serving his community. And uh, his, the Lord laid foster care on his, his, uh, his heart and his wife's heart. So they, they started that process. And it's the day that their home became available to be a foster parent, uh, they received a child. Uh, they received a little girl, a newborn baby girl, who was found behind a dumpster in downtown Atlanta and um, came into their home. And they uh, worked through the challenges uh, with, with that. Uh, then a year later, they got another call. Um, and come to find out it was the um, half-sister of, of their their first child that they received. And so they fostered those two girls uh, for a while and eventually adopted them into their family. And uh, they're the ones on this, on this material. Uh, this isn't uh, stock photos. These are, this is a real family and real, real kids who mm. have been affected by foster care and been encouraged through a ministry like Families for Families. And I shared this when we met, but when I first saw that, I was like, you know, that's, that's a pretty well done, you know, from a branding <laughs> standpoint, marketing. Like that, that like really hooks you in. It's like, you know, this is the potential. This is what, you know, and I, and I think I was a little judgmental in that, that I was thinking that this was kind of an impersonal brochure, right? But this is Wayne's actual kids. Yes. They're real kids that were found in Atlanta, that one was found behind a dumpster and one was born in prison. That was just, and what I loved when we shared this with the Don was like, Wayne was just, just like me and my wife, right? He was just serving at a church, but he had a full-time job. And he was just sitting in, in worship service after worship service, hearing the preaching of God's word and specifically the, idea, the, the emphasis on the care for orphans. And just one day, God put kids in his life. And so he went from that to a whole organization. How big is Families for Families? Um, we've, got, uh, we've got approximately 130 ch uh, children in care right now, over 100 families wow. associated with our organization. Mm. Um, we're brand new to this area. We've launched out um, here to this part of the state, and um, we currently have a number of families actually from the Savannah campus that will be, uh, their homes will be available very shortly in the next awesome. month or so. And, and one thing for Shannon is when, this Families for Families, his work does not just encompass like the city limits of Statesboro. He's working with families as far east as Savannah and his work could extend as far west as Dublin and Vidalia. And so it, his like, his map of areas that, to cover, this is a, a huge area that, uh, and kids from, from the, as far as those places could be placed here, you know? And so there's, there's a, a big geographic area that we're trying to, to really care for. Yeah, and let me just, one, one quick thing. I uh, want to kind of clarify who we are and what we do. Like, okay, families for families, foster care, all this stuff, fostering in Bullock, how all that works. Well, basically, we're what's called a, a, a child placement agency, it's a CPA, where we're contracted with the state of Georgia to license, train, um, and, and, and 
and equip foster families to be foster parents. So it's, it's like in, instead of going to DFAC's off, your local DFAC's office, you can come to us and we will uh, walk you through that process and support you along the way uh, just as well. And so we are a faith-based agency. We only partner with local churches. I think that's awesome. I didn't even know that was an option within fo- the foster care system. I thought if I entered into foster care, I would just be kind of on my own dealing with uh, defects and federal government and different things like that for the taking care of a kid. But what Families for Families does is if you have a question, you can't get in touch with a social worker or with anything like that that carries such a huge workload. Like the, the defect system is, is overwhelmed. Families for Families is an advocate alongside that for you as a follower of Jesus to, to care for these kids, but also to relate professionally to defects. I thought that was a, a really important thing. What all is involved like, so you're saying that the only thing within foster care is taking in of kids in perpetuity? No, and so this is kind of what we do as, a, as an organization. So yes, uh, we need families who would be willing to be foster families uh, to take in kids for short-term, long-term, whatever that may be. But also there's, there are other av- uh, avenues and pathways that you can come. Now, some of, them, some of these require the, the same type of uh, paperwork process and approval process, but maybe it would be what we, what's known as a respite family. And that means you would take in a child for just a couple of nights uh, for a ver- variety of reasons why that would be needed. But also as a part of Families for Families, we don't just uh, place foster children. We want to support those children, but also support those families. So we build a network of mom's groups, dad's groups, um, help with continuing education hours that are mandatory uh, to and required by the state so that you can stay as a foster parent. But, and, and when we do these support services, we also like to put together what we call a date night where once a month, uh, the foster families in the areas can bring their children to us. And I know in, in the light of COVID, we're having to rethink a lot of those things. But in, in, in the standard way of operating, we'd have a, a date night where those families could drop off their children. We would help take care of them so mom and dad can go have a date. Yeah. You know, we do those on a regular basis, which that would then go, well, hey, I can't be a foster parent, but hey, you may be a college student here going, I could be a babysitter that night and help out with those those activities as well. And so that's really, you know, and, and as we talk about next steps shortly, you know, that's what that information session is about, is to talk about those uh, ways that you can be involved intentionally from either, in, in all of those pathways. Yeah. So bullet points, you, you can take in a child, get trained to accept a child into your family and they'd be you're a new foster child and they're with you for a long time. You can be a respite family to where they're with you for a day, for a week, something like that until they can get permanently placed. So you're just kind of like closing the gap between being placed permanently and being left in an awful situation for a foster kid. Or you can be somebody that just is an advocate for uh, like a a, um, parents night out type thing or for just babysitting for parents to be able to go on a date, to go on like... If you have a foster child, you can't leave the state that you're in. So if you got family in another state, you need somebody to watch your foster child so that they can go and care for family in another state. All of those are avenues of partnership with families for families. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But Shannon, do we really need all of this? Isn't this just kind of an Atlanta problem? Um, well, you'd like to think so. But um, the reality is that, yeah, Atlanta has a, a larger population, therefore you've got larger numbers, therefore you have larger issues, and it's just a numbers game. Anybody that deals with numbers and percentages, you get that. However, but in this part of the state, an hour radius of where we're sitting right now, there's somewhere between six and 700 kids in foster care right now. Mm. 
within an hour radius of where we're sitting. And so it is a need here and it is a need now. And even more so now than, pro- I don't wanna say in the past, but we're, we're, we're on the stage of something kind of important. We, right we are. So COVID-19 has brought a, 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 a new dynamic in a number of ways. And one of those is, and, we're, and we've all dealt with that, is that we're having to stay home more. We're having to be, we, schools haven't been meeting. You know, daycares aren't working as normal. Different ca- day camps, all these different recreation activities, all these things have not been working and operating normally as they would. And what that means is kids who may have been in a challenging situation are are in closer proximity to those challenging situations on a more consistent basis. Mm. Um, you know, I looked up and just confirmed some statistics I was, I was assuming, but just confirmed some of that this week. You know, domestic violence calls are, are up somewhere in between 10 and 15% right now. Mm. And anytime you hear about increase in domestic violence, if there are children involved, there is a high potential that children are in the home where those things are going on, which then means they could potentially be coming into care. Um, Also, um, first uh, first responders or first uh, reporter, mandatory reporters um, are not seeing these kids on a regular basis. Like I said, school has been canceled for a a long time, since March 13th. I know that because that's when my kids came out of school. (laughs) Um, And and so their teachers aren't seeing kids that may need to, to have questions being asked as to why they have certain things going on. And so we don't want to be doom and gloom and we don't want to be pulling on heartstrings, but we want to look at the situation and try to evaluate it as best we can. And we want to be ready because when school starts back in a few weeks, as various things start to open back up, there is a high potential that we could see a potential surge. We don't know that for sure, but there's a potential that that could happen of children who are going to come into care because they are now being seen by those people who would normally be uh, advocating for them. Yeah, all, all these kids that typically rely on school or daycare for maybe meals, certainly for safety, mm-hmm. uh, for supplies and resources that they, they maybe can't get at home, all of that has been taken away since March, right? And with, the, with kids being left and potentially more... Uh, toxic environments or in bad situations, uh, we're go- we're going to be coming to a point here in the coming weeks, months, you know, depending on what COVID does. Uh, and this is what's crazy. Here's the best case scenario. The best case scenario is that me and Shannon are up here talking about this for absolutely no reason. Best case scenario is that there is not a child that winds up in the foster care system, and that is a huge win. We want we want kids to stay with their families if they're in a good family environment and where mom and dad can really take care of them. Um, but what we're seeing is that a, a surge of 10 to 15% rise in domestic violence is gonna lead to probably that, if not more, of a rise in foster care needs. And this is what's been scary for me and why um, everything that Shannon has shared with me has been so uh, moving in my life. And Shannon asked me backstage, like, why has this become so important to you? It's because I can't stop thinking about the need. Like now that I know the need, it's hard for me to unknow those facts. And some of those facts are that uh, if if we get to the point where school gets back in and children are able to go back to to daycare, in other words, all the screening moments where kids can discover or be discovered of abuse or find out that they're in an abusive home, once those screenings start happening again and we start discovering cases, if we don't have foster families ready, it's too late. 
Like you can't just learn about it, then get prepared. It's a, it's a several month process to get ready. And that's what makes our information meeting that's gonna be happening next week. All I wanted to accomplish in this interview was to express the urgency of the need. Because I believe the Holy Spirit in us is gonna move in such a way that we, we can't unknow the need. And it's, I hope it moves just hundreds of people in our church to get ready to engage with the need of foster care that's coming when these kids are pulled out of their homes. With that, would you just share kind of what a, what a, a moment of a child going from a, a, a home to, or going, coming from their family's home into foster care, what that can look and feel like? Yeah, so a more recent experience that we had with our agency, um, uh, there was a, a, some children who came into to our, to one of the, families in our, uh, with our agency. So we basically get a phone call. Um, these, these kids uh, had gone to the daycare school that they were involved. This is a few months ago. Um, but they went to the daycare that they were involved in. Uh, this, the teachers and, and, and those that were teaching them noticed some red flags and began investigating. They made a report. Those kids um, then um, didn't go home to their family that night. Uh, they got put with a respite home for the first night. Um, and then our agency was called the second night, that second day, uh, for a more permanent placement for those kids. So then on day two, uh, myself and Wayne went and we picked up those kids from that daycare and from that respite home and took them to the home of our foster family. And that's one... And that's something else that we try to help provide for our, our families because a foster family, you don't get like, hey, let me let you know tomorrow about that. You know, you get a call, a kid comes into care, it has, you need a yes or no, which a foster family's already been trained and kind of prepped for that. But you gotta be ready to respond. And so what we do as an agency is we try to help uh, make those phone calls, make that placement as soft as possible but also make sure that, so that the families can be getting the house together, getting, getting off work, getting their other kids maybe situated with what may be going on. So all the while, we're working in the background to go get those kids and make sure they're, they're in your homes uh, at an appropriate time and, and in the right place. And like I said, what we seek to do is we seek to support the family so that these kids can be in a, in a good place. And we wanna do that through local churches because yeah. we believe that if you're in a church, we, we pray that you are a gospel community, which we know Connections is. You're a gospel community. You want the gospel to be getting in your home anyway. Well, we want these kids to get exposed to the gospel as well. And we had five kids come into care um, to some families uh, this past week. And all of those kids are potentially in church for the first time today as we're sitting here today. So that's our end goal. Our end goal is to provide for these kids, support, for the, support the family so that they can uh, thrive in what they're doing because it's not easy. Listen, it is not for the faint of heart. I'm not gonna get up here and gloss it over for you. It's not for the faint of heart, but it's a ministry. And God never told us ministry is gonna be easy. Yeah. And God may be calling you to do it. And I just wanna give you the opportunity and show you what the pathways are so that you can yeah. be obedient to that if that's your next step, so. Yeah, all we're inviting you to from here is just to come and learn, you know, just to come and learn more and to hear more. Uh, you can sign up online at connection.church foster and it'll redirect you to uh, Families for Families page. Uh, and you can, you'll be right back here next uh, Sunday night where you'll be able, all you're saying yes to at this point is more information. So uh, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you guys listening. 
I just would really encourage you, like if this has moved in your heart, really pray about it and see what God would have you do. And if it's not then this, then I would just pray and encourage you to pray and, and seek the Lord for what you should say yes to. Uh, so let me pray and you guys will be dismissed. God, we love you. God, what we know not, God, I pray that you would teach us. What we have not, I pray that you would give us, Lord. And what we are not, I pray that you would make us. And I just pray that over all of my brothers and sisters here in this room. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys.